Well, thank you so much, Father, that we can sing together, be encouraged and refreshed and renewed in our spirit and renewed in our thinking. Thank you that you are a heavenly Father who holds our days in your hand. Father, thank you that you are trustworthy and thank you in your omnipotent power and in your sovereign grace you oversee our lives. You work all things together for good to bring glory to yourself. Father, as we open our Bibles today, may our hearts be strengthened, may our minds be renewed, may our paths be straightened, and may we have a a zeal and, and a strength of spirit to want to go from here, to walk in obedience. May we make application, Lord, of these truths today that your Holy Spirit will use as fodder throughout the week to remind us and to sharpen us, to tool us, to walk in the truth, to let our light shine before a watching world. It's in Jesus' name we pray now, committing ourselves to the hearing of the word. Amen. Well, I invite you again this week to turn to Genesis and chapter 27. We're going to try to cover Genesis chapter 27 in its entirety. I was thinking that if you are the kind of person who enjoys spy movies, espionage, the kind of movies where the plot is somewhat complicated and you're not always sure which person is doing what and which one is the good guy and which one is the bad guy, you're going to like this story. If you like the kind of um, Mission Impossible type movies where you think you're watching someone and then the next thing you know they do this, they, they grab the bottom of their chin and they peel off their face and oh, it's not him, it's him. We got a little bit of that in our story today, but I was thinking also... Uh, that if that's not your kind of thing, and you like to watch soaps. Man, I hope you don't watch those things. But if you do, you're going to really love this story today. Because it is about backstabbing. It is about manipulation. It is about a family that is torn up. It is about... It is about the possession of loyalties between a mother and a father. It is about siblings threatening to murder one another. I mean, this is the stuff of movies and soaps right here in our Bible. Thankfully, it's not rated R, so we can uh, uh, just open our Bibles and turn right to it, though. And uh, to help us along, because it is a long passage and we want to cover chapter 27 in its entirety, we're going to read it in bite-sized chunks, and you're going to see that there are four characters. Of course, it's a family of four here. It's Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of promise, his wife Rebecca, and their twin sons who are now grown. And uh, we're going to see, as we break down this story, that this is in many ways a family Uh, in dysfunction and chaos. It is, though, however, strangely enough, and this is a hard chapter in the Bible to know what to do with, in a way, because it it is a family where essentially everyone but maybe one really does want the blessing of God, and they're willing to do just about anything to get that blessing, including lying, cheating, and manipulating, all for the blessing of God. And so it's kind of a strange twist on the story. As we read now, we're going to break it down, and you'll see that the storyline goes like this. It begins with a determined old man. A determined old man. Let's read verses 1 through 4, okay? Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 27 of Genesis. 
When Isaac, this is our old man, was old, there he is, and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man, and I don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your weapons, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food that I like, and bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Let's stop there for just a minute, and let's kind of put it in context, and let's understand Phase one of our story, this determined old man. It should raise some questions in your mind because if you've been with us, you know from chapter 25 that when these boys were born, that they were a long time in coming. Isaac and Rebekah waited 20 years to have children and then she had twins in her womb. And, and she wondered in a difficult pregnancy what was happening and they prayed. And when she prayed, God answered and God told her that these boys were at war in her womb and they were going to be in conflict the rest of their lives, and that the older would serve the younger. But we also know from chapter 25 that Isaac favored this older son Esau, who was a rugged, wild animal of a man who roamed the hills and was a hunter. The book of Hebrews tells us, chapter 12 and verse 16, that he was a wicked, immoral man who despised the things of the Lord. We saw that in chapter 25 when his very birthright was traded to his younger brother for a pot of soup and it says he despised it. That is, he couldn't have cared less about the spiritual ramifications of his position in his family. He didn't care about God, he only cared about himself. For some reason, his father favors this guy. Whether it was his masculinity, his ruggedness, we know in part because there is an emphasis in the first part here of Isaac's love for this stew, that evidently a venison stew that Isaac would bring in from, from harvesting his game, and his father loved it, and so he loved for Isaac to come to his house. There's another point worth noting in this first section, that is this Isaac is a determined old man. He is determined to give his blessing to the oldest son, even though God has already said that's not going to happen. And so he wants to fix a meal and sort of have a little ceremony. We know that at this point, and remember I told you last week that we have the least amount of information on Isaac, and the least amount of volume with Isaac as any of any of the patriarchs. And so we've moved immediately to where it says in our text, he is an old man and he has lost his vision. You're going to see how that affects the rest of the story. Interestingly enough, uh, the commentaries do not agree on how old Isaac is at this point. If you'll look, just glance your eyes up at the chapter 26 and verse 34 and 35, it says that when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Barry and these Hittite women, and they were a source of grief to his mother and father. Some of the commentaries then flip right to 27.1 with Esau's age being the marker, and so they say that... Um, uh, uh, Isaac was, uh, at this point, about 100 years old. But if you, if you do some research and you go to all right, his grandson Joseph, remember Jacob is going to have sons, 
And a key son there is Joseph. And if you use the markers of how old Joseph was with how old Jacob was when he was born, and then how old Isaac was when he died, the evidence seems to show that at this point, you can calculate Jacob's age here um, at about 137 years old. So he's somewhere around 130, 135, 137 years old. Interestingly enough, guess how old he is when he dies? He's going to be 180 years old when he dies. And that you'll see that in chapter 35, verse 28. You don't have to turn there, but if you turn to 35, 28, you'll see that we'll get to it eventually. Isaac is going to die, and he's going to be 180 years old. So at this point, if you calculate that he's in his 130s, that means... Interestingly enough, that Esau and Jacob are in their 70s. Jacob is still unmarried. Esau has been married for about 30 years to these Hittite or Canaanite women. Isn't that interesting? We don't think of it like that, especially if we grew up in Sunday school, do we? With the, do you, did you grow up with the, the little watercolor pictures and your teacher was sitting on the chair and you'd gather around and these little watercolors? That was good stuff, wasn't it? You know, this high-tech stuff with... Now you have to have Mindy and Bindi in the story and everybody is like, where are they in the Bible? And, and uh, anyway, I, I digress. <laughs> we move from our determined old man who is determined, and we know from the context, determined out of the will of God to bestow his blessing as on Esau as the child of promise through whom God will bless the world and raise up a nation. Let's move on to the second part of the story. And we move from the determined old man to a devious housewife. Here's where our soap opera is going to pick up. Verse 5, Now Rebekah, his wife, was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Remember, they live in tents. We saw this with Abraham and Sarah, didn't we? That, when, that she could hear through the wall and so forth. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. All right, here's the plot. Here's the deceit, the manipulation. Verse 9, go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. We were going, we're going to make sure that what God wants is done and we'll just schnooker your dad and he'll never know. All right? Jacob says to Rebekah, his mother, verse 11, but my brother Esau is an hairy man and I'm a man with smooth skin. What if my father touches me? You're going to find out how hairy this rascal really is. I would appear to be tricking him, he would say, and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. And you have to credit Jacob with at least some moral, ethical, spiritual integrity at this point, don't you? He's saying, look, I, I want the blessing. I need the blessing. My skin is smooth. My brother is hairy. If my father touches me, which surely he will do when he bestows the blessing, he's going to realize that I'm not Esau. He has called for Esau. It's going to be Jacob. And instead of getting the blessing, I'm going to get a curse. And he had a fear of that happening to him. He had a fear of his father, his patriarchal 
father looking at him and saying, away with you for the blessing. You, do, you know, that bothered him. So he had some sensitivity here. He, he wanted the blessing. He didn't want to risk it. Let's read on. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. She'd been cooking for him a long time. She evidently knew how Esau kind of fixed that venison. He took the goat. She tried to make it taste like the venison stew. Then Rebekah took the best clothes, it says in verse 15, of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. We don't know why his clothes were there, but evidently he was through the area enough that he had some clothes there that he had worn in the field. Then Rebekah took the best clothes, okay, that they had. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with goat skins. I assume with the hair side up. Then she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made. I mean, you can only imagine this Esau. He had a particular smell, as you're going to know in a minute. He had hair like a goat, and his hair was red. This guy was wild and woolly. All right? And then she handed her son Jacob the tasty food, again, verse 17, and the bread she had made. And he went to his father. Well, let's just stop there for a minute. That's Rebecca's manipulation. Now granted, we will give her credit that she wants the right end result. But isn't she going about it in a way? It's kind of oh, one chapter title that I saw on this was doing the Lord's work the devil's way. It's like, what in the world is she thinking? And I think we're going to return to this passage because don't we see some issues between Isaac and Rebecca here in the meltdown of their marriage and communication and, and their connection. Well, she's manipulating the circumstances. She goes into high gear once she hears that Esau is going to receive the blessing. We know that she favors her younger son, Jacob. He's the heel grabber. He's the one that wants to overcome and overtake. We're going to find out in weeks ahead as well, in chapters ahead, that he continues to have a kind of a shrewdness, kind of a... Oh man, almost a, a, almost a schnookery, a chicanery about him. And um, his mother shows and leads the way. In a sense, you could say he gets it honest. We move then to Jacob's part, where Jacob becomes the key player in the story, a deceitful younger brother. We move from our determined old man to do the wrong thing to the devious wife who wants to do the right thing the wrong way, to the conniving, deceitful younger brother. Let's read it now, verse 18. He went to his father and he said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Evidently, the voice wasn't just quite right. Jacob said to his father, <coughs> I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give your blessing. Evidently, Isaac was in a low point in his health. He had lost much of his vision, if not all of his vision, at least to the degree that he could not see right in front of him. He was lying down here in the middle of the day, evidently. We don't know what time of day it is exactly. And Jacob wants him to get up from his resting position 
Interestingly enough, he must have rallied out of this low period because he does live at least 40 more years. According to some, he lives 80 more years. Here begins now a deceitfulness in Jacob that is totally ungodly. Jacob says to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Lie, number one. I have done as you told me. Further lying. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? Things weren't quite stacking up here. The voice wasn't quite right. It, the venison stew was produced pretty quickly. Oh, major lie number two, probably blasphemy. The Lord your God gave me success. And you're kind of hunkering down, waiting for the lightning to fall, aren't you? Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son. He wants further evidence to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Something's not quite right in the, in the maybe the sleep-hazed, ill mind, blind as he is. He doesn't trust himself and he just doesn't feel right. Jacob went close to his father and continues the deception who touches him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. And so he blessed him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked? Another lie. I am indeed. And then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. And Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some wine and he drank and then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. You wonder if he's still suspicious. He wants to just settle his thinking even further, and he gives one more test, the nose test, the smell test. Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, evidently the body odor and the the odor of the field was so in those work clothes or those hunting garments. It said it was his best clothes. It's possible that it was some form of a worship outfit and it was perfume or a cologne that Esau was known for. I tend to believe it was less likely to be a cologne and more likely to be the smell of his body that he picked up on. Doesn't really matter. He identified it as Esau and then he gives his blessing. Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the son of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. Building on the Abrahamic covenant and the promise of God, Isaac bestows this promise further on his son. And in God's sovereignty, it all, even the plans of the wicked, are worked out unto the ends of the Lord's own ends. And I don't mean to overstate the wickedness of Rebekah and Jacob. It is interesting, isn't it, that we have no condemnation in the Bible of these actions specifically. In principle, throughout Scripture, we have these of lying and manipulation condemned. But Rebekah and Jacob are never condemned by name in Scripture. Esau is clearly condemned as a wicked man. There is, though, however, some consequence to their behavior, which we'll see shortly. 
There's your deceitful young brother. At first he's resistant, but then he clearly enters into at least three stages of lying, building one upon another, even calling on the name of the Lord in deceit, wanting a good thing in all the wrong ways, acting as though God can't handle this. God needs a little help to carry out His will. We then have the blessing over in verse 30 and we move to the fourth stage of our story from the determined old man who was determined to do wrong to the devious wife who was determined to do right all the wrong ways to the deceitful younger brother who engaged in unethical manner to the defeated bitter brother, the defeated bitter man that Esau becomes after Isaac, verse 30, finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely, scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. Isaac's spirit bears witness with the reality of that. He knows it's true. And look at Isaac trembled violently. Evidently, it just about killed him. And he said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. And when Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry. And he said to his father, Bless me! Bless me too, my father! But he said, Your brother came and deceitfully came in deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob, that deceiver, one who deceives? He has deceived me these two times, that heel grabber. He took my birthright and now he has taken my blessing. And then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered, Esau, I have made him Lord over you and have made all his relatives his servants. And I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, father. When then Esau wept aloud, his father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. And when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. And it's true, every word of it. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Don't you see the script to a soap opera here? Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban and Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? In other words, if Esau kills Jacob, then the community is going to have to kill Esau with the death penalty. She'll lose both of her sons. Or he will flee to the mountains and never return as a, as a fugitive. And then Rebekah, verse 46, said to Isaac, I am disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. I haven't decided if she's in, sincere in her motivation here or if this is further schnookery 
manipulating the thinking of Isaac so that he would agree that Jacob should leave in his old age. She wants him to go to preserve his life. She goes to Isaac and says, he needs a wife, and if he picks up a wife from the Canaanites like Esau, I'll die. Let's send him back to our people so that he can get a wife that can be blessed. <clears throat> so Isaac called for Jacob, blessed him, and commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padam Aram, to the house of your mother's father Bethuel. Take a wife there, and so forth. Let's just let the rest go. We'll pick it up at a further date. There's our story. Interesting, isn't it? People wanting to do God's, receive God's blessing, wanting to do God's will, but willing to, to manipulate and do things in an ungodly manner, rationalizing that the end indeed justifies the means. I thought it would be good for us to take just a minute and break down Isaac's thought processes. He's the first one that I return to in my thinking. As I read the story, I think, okay, where's the breakdown? What's the deal here? Why is this happening? And one of the things we see is that Isaac oversteps his bounds. Isaac makes decisions in such a way that it's outside of the will of God. I'd like you to see three breakdowns in Isaac's decision decisions making, and the first one you can see on the screen already, is that he doubted the word of God. Don't we make bad decisions when we doubt God's word? Isaac knew. Isaac knew that in answer to prayer, the younger would serve the older, and for some reason that really bugged him. For some reason, he really kind of was worked up over that, and he knew that God had answered prayer when Rebekah had prayed. Remember, they didn't have chapter and verse. Remember, they did not have scriptures in writing at this time, but God would appear to them, and God would speak to them, and they knew it was God, and they held on to God's word by faith, believing, and they were honored for it. But in this process, somewhere along the line, this must have always been a burr under Isaac's saddle because he wanted Esau. And in his old age, thinking he's going to die, he's trying to manipulate God. He doubted God's word. Reminds you of many people in God's word, doesn't it? Right at the very beginning in the garden, when the serpent comes to Eve, what does he do? He gets her to doubt God's love and God's faithfulness and God's ability to oversee things and, and to doubt his word. No, 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 no. God didn't really mean that. I'll tell you something. When you make decisions that are outside of the will of God, you will be able to identify, if you will be honest with yourself, even in writing, you will be able to write it down, exactly the point and exactly the concept on which you doubted God. You won't do it during the process. But at the end, when you turn around and look back, you will admit to yourself right there, I doubted. I doubted the love of God. I doubted the faithfulness of God. I doubted the provision of God. I doubted the promises of God. And I took things into my own hands. And it created nothing but chaos and division in his family. Isaac, in his decision-making process, broke down by doubting God's word. Number two, he dismissed the wishes of his wife. I think we're going to talk more about their relationship in a future date and what's going on in their old age. But surely they talked about this. This doesn't come from the text. This is an argument of silence. But can you really believe that Isaac and Rebekah didn't spend many, many conversations talking about why God was doing this? 
and why Esau was the way that he was and why Jacob was the way that he was and that maybe this kind of always kind of rubbed them the wrong way. And they always ended up in their conversations uh, breaking down and getting a little snippy by the end of this part of the conversation. Why? Because Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. And maybe he would always just kind of, ah, oh, and off to the field he would go because she wouldn't give in. Jacob's our guy. Jacob's the one that'll get the blessing. I don't want to overkill on this, but I think there is a, a warning here. Often when we overstep or step out of the will of God, we have voices of those closest to us, don't we, that we have disregarded. A husband or a wife will look at you and say, you shouldn't do this, or why are you doing this? This is wrong. And in stubbornness or in anger, you do it anyway. And it's wrong. He doubted the word of God. He dismissed the wishes of his wife. I think it's significant that when he considered Esau, he disregarded the life choices of this boy. We'll not take time to look at them, but they're right there in 25.34 and 26.34. Verse 34 in both those chapters. 25.34 and 26.34. In 25.34, it's where he despises his birthright. Isaac knew all about his attitude towards godly things and spiritual things, and he knew that Esau couldn't care less about the things of God. And I believe, if I don't get a chance to say it further, I believe that when he wailed and moaned and wept and cried out because he missed the blessing, it had nothing to do with a concern of God's blessing on his life. It had everything to do with the double inheritance and the double portion of the, of the material goods that he was going to get. And the prestigious position of being the honored son. I don't think he cared a whip about God in his life. Esau knew that. He had to know that. And further, he knew it. It was confirmed by the fact that against the training and upbringing that he had, he went out and on his own, without parental involvement, married two Canaanite women, which were forbidden to marry. He was forbidden to marry. He's going to do it anyway. Three things that Isaac disregards in his decision-making. I think we need to skip right to the conclusion here. Put a screen up with uh, four key questions. I wanted to take a minute and respond. Can you just look at this really quickly? It's on the screen. Uh, uh, let me just say them to you quickly and what I'm thinking. In Isaac made three boo-boos in determining God's will. I wanted to encourage especially our young people here today that if you have to make decisions that are major in your life, that are life impacting concerning God's will for your life, you had better include these four questions. And if you aren't asking these four questions, you're going to get in trouble. Number one, has God spoken? That would be law. Is there a specific word about this? Okay. And in the case of Esau, for example, in his relationships, you're not to be unequally yoked. God has spoken. Have I prayed? Am I praying about it? And isn't it, isn't it amazing the major decision-making that can go on in our lives and we realize we haven't even prayed about it? Thirdly, I want you to see, ask the question, is there more? Okay, if God doesn't have a chapter and a verse on it, and he doesn't have a chapter and verse on a lot of things, for example, should I buy this brand new F-250 four-wheel drive, knobby-tired, Big pickup truck. I really want it. It's really good. I could make money hauling bales of hay with it or, you know, whatever. It'll really be enhance, you know, my image in the community. It's really a good thing. Chapter and verse, no chapter and verse. Have I prayed about it? No, I don't have to pray about it. I really need a truck. My other one just, the engine just blew. So I don't pray about it. 
no chapter and verse and pray about, then you have to ask yourself, is there more? Is there more that I should think about? What I'm, more what? More information. Are there principles in God's Word? You're going to run up debt. You're going to have to buy fuel. You can't afford it. It's going to blow your budget. It's going to do, you know, it's going to appeal to the pride of your life. All right, there's more that the Word of God says about it. Are you listening or have you ignored it? That's what I mean. Is there more? And fourthly, who says what? What do the wise people in your life, what does your spouse say? What does your buddy say? What does your pastor say? What do your teachers say? Who says what? And if you're seeking God's will and you're doing what, Jacob, uh, what Isaac did and you're doubting God's word and you're dismissing the, the information of people around you and you're disregarding decision making of other people, ask these four questions. Has God spoken? Have I prayed? Is there more? Who says what? Well, let's go right to life application on this passage. Let's take a few thoughts with us here, and we'll just stop then and um, pick it up next week. There's a life lesson, number one, I think, from this passage, and I think you'll see that it's easily observed. First of all, don't we need to recognize in seeking God's will and in doing the work of God and accomplishing the purposes of God for our lives that our sovereign, omnipotent God is never out of control? What happened in this story? Rebecca went into a panic. Oh no! Oh no! God must be sleeping! Oh no! It's not going to work out! God works even the ends of the wicked to, to his own accomplishment. Listen, I don't think that God ever expects us, and this can open up a, in an interesting ethical discussion. But God does not expect us to violate the instruction and the principles and the commands of His Word to accomplish His will. God never wants us to, to do things in a sinful, fleshly way to accomplish His will. God is in control. He's trustworthy. He can get His job done. Now, God uses people, but I don't think Rebecca needed to worry that God couldn't make things work out just the way it was supposed to work out without lying, cheating, and manipulating Second life lesson, not only can we trust the sovereignty of our God and the omnipotence of our God, but lies, deception, and cover-up always lead to more lies, deception, and cover-up. Did you see that in the story? When Jacob starts lying, man, it never ends. Listen, if you find yourself in a situation where you are lying to cover up, and you are lying to manipulate you just start keeping track. Just go to the refrigerator, put a little 3 by 5 card up there, start putting slash marks on there about every time you have to lie and deceive and mislead and cover up to cover up your lies that you first did. And everybody in the kitchen will be saying, what's that card with all the hash marks? Oh, I'm just keeping track of, you know, you'll lie again. How many times I opened the refrigerator door? <laughs> slash mark. It never ends. Listen. You will weave such a tangled web and you'll dig such a ditch. And then finally one day, you'll find yourself in brokenness. Why even go down that road? If you are involved in manipulating lying behavior, knock it off now. Not only can we trust God's omnipotent power in our lives, we don't need to lie and manipulate. Number three, can't you see in this story that the blessing of God is never enhanced by sinful behavior? The blessing of God is never enhanced. Psalm 84 says, 
that it is the upright that receive his blessing. Do you know that when Rebecca goes to Isaac in the story and she says, we better send him off to Paran and get a wife, the evidence of the text would be that the next time Jacob sees his mother, she's dead. He never sees her again alive. The one she loved so much, she lost because of the manipulation. You can't enhance God's blessing by sinful behavior. And then finally, sin always has a price tag. Don't you see that? Sin always has a price tag. I wonder in your life if you've ever come to a place where you've emptied yourself of the of the control, the manipulation, the, the deceitful deeds. And you've just come to a place where you can say, Lord, will you take my life and will you let my life just be consecrated to you and I will let you oversee the outcomes. I am going to be faithful and I am going to walk in the truth and I'm going to be the man that honors you and his word and I'll leave the outcomes to you. I don't have to manipulate those things. You say, but Pastor Van, if I don't get involved, I'll end up marrying somebody ugly. <laughs> no, you won't. And if you do, you'll think she's beautiful. Leave it to the Lord. Have you poured yourself out? Surrender is the word we're talking about. Let's pray. Why don't you take a minute right now and just ask yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being I am fully in control in four-wheel drive with the blade down, 10 being I am totally surrendered hands off the wheel before the Lord, 1 I'm in control, 10 I'm fully surrendered to the Lord. Where would you have to put yourself on that standard today? Listen, it's not good enough to be a 6, 7, 8. You've got to be at 9, 9.5, fighting for 10, fighting the flesh, fully surrendered. Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my passions, take my days, take my will, take my desires, my thoughts. Bring them under Your control that I would not function like the rest of the world, all the while thinking I'm doing it to get Your blessing. So, Father, work in our hearts and our minds. Help us to surrender to you in such a way that you can work through us and in us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's sing that.